From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. Jack Webb was an American actor, director, and screenwriter who is most famous for his role as Sergeant Joe Friday in the TV police series Dragnet. But Webb was also a crusader in the fight for civil rights. After serving in World War II, Webb worked in radio and in 1946 had his own comedy show on ABC. That same year, he was host of a one-man program called One Out of Seven on ABC's KGO Radio in San Francisco. Jack Webb would dramatize a news story from the previous week, performing in as many as seven voices. And as you will hear, Webb used his voices to attack racial prejudice. Ladies and gentlemen, the material and quotations included in the following program have been taken directly from news dispatches off the wires of Associated Press, United Press, and International News Service. This news material is presented for your information without editorial comment. From San Francisco, the American Broadcasting Company presents One Out of Seven. Twenty-four hours make a day, seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is one out of seven. with omens of nourishing rains soon to come. 
Yes. It is a wonderful thing to live in a land where men are equal. Where men are brothers. It is truly a most wonderful thing. And all the more precious does it become when we realize that only a few years ago in ravaged cities far beyond our eastern coast, this was the order of events. Clear away the bodies from the wall. Come along. Fast there. We haven't all night. Light up another dozen of the Jewish animals against the wall. Fast, fast. That is it. Juden, fine. Soon they will all be gone. We must make it clear that we are the masters. Achtung. Ready. Aim. Fire. <laughs> That is good. Clear them away. Keep along there. Bring up another dozen. Move. We haven't all night to know. politically to suit his white neighbors is dragged from his home to a field on the outskirts of the town. There he is fastened to cross-like posts. His claws are ripped from his body. A man with a huge whip advances toward him. All right, nigger. Maybe this will teach you to keep some of your equality ideas to yourself this time. You know, a few swats across your hide with this should convince you but we're the bosses down here. All right, boys, come on, men. Give me room. Stand back. All right, Negro. Here you are. And this. And once more. You ought to learn now. I'll teach you. There, 
come back again to the land of free men. And all up and down the nation, in the quiet suburbs, in the town and the village, free men sing their songs, sing their songs onto the quiet night air, crammed with promise for better things and better times to come. college graduate mounts the steps of Jefferson County Courthouse, makes his way down a long marble corridor, and enters the office of the Registrar of Voters. There, as provided by Alabama state law, the young Negro takes the voters' registration test. He explains intelligently and comprehensively the Constitution of the United States, translates on sight a very difficult passage of French undergoes more tedious cross-examination. Finally, he is asked, All right, boy. Here you are. Read what it says here in this Greek newspaper. The young student studies the paper for a moment, and then he replies, Why, why, it says here that Negroes can't, can't vote in the state of Alabama. That's absolutely correct, boy. Sure have caught on. Now listen. If you'll just step out that door you came in and slam it behind you. In the neighboring state of Mississippi... In the small town of Tupelo, Reverend James Parsons files his candidacy for the United States House of Representatives to oppose incumbent Congressman John Rankin. Immediately thereafter, the insurance on the church in which Reverend Parsons has served for 25 years is canceled. Reverend Parsons' daughter is a schoolteacher so her teacher certificate is immediately taken away. Reverend Parsons' son is away at Howard University for Negroes in Washington, and he is warned by telegram, Your old man has fixed you good. Now don't try to come back to Tupelo if you know what's good for you. You got that? 
Finally, one Sunday evening, after evening services at his church, Reverend Parsons is standing at the door to the vestibule when a group of men approach him. Ah, good evening, gentlemen. What may I do for you? I'll tell you what you can do for us. You can get out of town. Get out of town and get out fast. And don't try to come back or we'll lynch you sure. Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gil Dodd was the producer. Music is by Otto Clare at the Hammond. All characters are portrayed by Jack Webb. Featured tonight was Joseph James Baritone. Tonight's presentation was based on reports taken from authoritative files and from dispatches off the wires of Associated Press, United Press, and International News Service. Listen again next week, same time, same station for... One out of seven. John Galbraith speaking. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Ladies and gentlemen, the material and direct quotations included in the following program have been taken from authoritative files and from dispatches filed by the Associated Press and International News Service. We present these statements without editorial comment. We assume no responsibility for their content. The American Broadcasting Company presents...
One out of seven. Twenty-four hours make a day. Seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is One Out of Seven. Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. As a member of the United States Senate, he is looked upon as such by the eyes of the law. Perhaps he is looked upon as such by many or most of his constituents. Though his voice occasionally grate upon the nerves and his views often confound the innocent, the fact remains, as a member of the Senate of the United States, Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. And we do not intend to prove otherwise. We merely wish to cite a few samples of his handiwork, and perhaps a supplementary side glance or two, just for the sake of contrast. Adjust your dials most carefully, citizens. Herewith presenting... Senator Theodore Bilbo, picture number one. Scene, the chamber of the Mississippi State Legislature, time, March 23rd, 1944. The speaker... The chair recognizes... Us distinguished guest, the Honorable Theodore Bilbo, United States Senator from the state of Mississippi. Gentlemen, at this moment, I cannot urge you too strongly to continue the valiant fight to uphold our racial integrity. We must renew our faith and allegiance to the color line. For your information, I have found that certain Negro organizations are determined to secure passage of anti-poll tax measures. It's their first wedge toward the fulfillment of a dastardly equality program which Negro leaders have launched throughout the South and throughout the nation. That equality they must not and will not attain. After his stirring appeal to the legislature, Senator Bilbo informs a small group of friends in confidential tones. <clears throat> you know, gentlemen, I, I found out that a prominent uh, national official asked uh, southern colleges and universities to open their doors to Negroes. You know what I told them? Well, I'll tell you what I told them. I told them, I said, Negroes are never getting into our universities. You Negro-loving Yankees can go straight... As a member of the Senate of the United States, Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man. And we do not intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number two. Hello. Senator Bilbo speaking. Senator, this is Representative Mark Antonio of New York speaking. Yes, yes, what do you want? 
Senator, I just got a letter from a lady who lives in my district. Uh, it seems that she wrote you that letter about your filibustering against the FEPC. Well, she says she stated her case fairly. And uh, she also says that as a reply, you wrote her one of the dirtiest letters possible. <laughs> well, yes, I, I think I did. Well, Senator, she also says you addressed her with a greeting, My dear Dago. Is that correct? Of course that's correct. That's what I called her. She's a wop, ain't she? That lady's Italian, Senator. If that's what you mean. I just thought you'd like to know that the lady has three brothers in the army in Europe. One of them has been killed in action already. You know, if you had a shred of decency in you, you'd apologize for that letter. I'll never apologize why she's getting off light. Now listen, she really would have been scorched if I was mad. Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man. We do not intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number three. Scene. The chamber of the United States Senate. Time, the 30th of June, 1945. Senator Bilbo is filibustering against passage of the Fair Employment Practices Commission. And during his prolonged dissertation to the gentlemen of the Senate... The following occurs. The senator from Mississippi may continue. Thank you. Gentlemen, I have been hearing much talk about the supposed bravery of our Negro soldiers. I have it on good authority and from some of the highest ranking generals in our army that our Negro troops overseas are an utter and abysmal failure. They're just no good. And as for giving them a vote, why, they'd only sell their votes to the highest bidder anyway. So why give it to them in the first place? At the same moment, deep in the jungle of an embattled Pacific island... A Negro soldier pens a note back home to his family. And maybe this works pretty hard, Margaret. But it's a job that you just have to do. It's been three days now and no sleep. Their bombers are still paying us visits. And it still doesn't look like the war is going to be over soon. But we have to keep on. Just keep on. I know. I just know everything's going to turn out all right. And when we finally get back, the folks will realize what we've done. And I'll bet they look at us differently. You know, for the first time, they'll see that bullets can kill anybody. They'll see, black or white, when blood runs out on the ground. It's all the same color. That's what the Negro G.I. thought. But back in the chamber of the United States Senate, Theodore Bilbo thought differently. I have it on good authority, and from some of the highest-ranking generals in our army... 
that our Negro troops overseas are an utter and abysmal failure. When Senator Bilbo made that statement, he was standing under the roof of the United States Senate. It is very safe in the United States Senate. A bomb hasn't fallen there for quite some time. You must understand, please, this is merely a portrait, an interesting portrait, of a duly elected representative of the American people. For you see, Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man, and we do not wish or intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number four. Though the senator has firm convictions on certain subjects, there is seen a mounting tide of sentiment equally firm, equally convinced that the senator errs on the 10th of August, 1940. Senator Bilbo. It is the opinion of the Committee of Catholics for Human Rights that your conduct toward racial minorities is a chilling deterrent to worldwide belief that America is the symbol of democratic freedom and human rights. In a recent statement to the press, you attacked the Jewish people of the United States on the grounds that their race had damned and crucified Christ. You used this highly metaphysical argument to damn, vilify, besmirch, and otherwise persecute the Jewish people in America to further your own political ends. By lucid contrast, a few days after his attack on the Jews, Senator Bilbo is stricken suddenly with a strange ailment. He is put aboard a train and speeds northward for treatment. And is it not strange that the senator demands to be taken to the Mayo Clinic? Is it not strange when you consider that the Mayo Clinic was founded and operated by the Mayo Brothers, two members of the Jewish race professing the Jewish faith? Obviously, the senator is not loath to take advantage of the skill of the Jewish race. In the end, the senator's critical operation is a success, and in a few weeks he returns to the floor of the Senate with another plan for the American Negroes. Gentlemen, for the best interests of the nation and all concerned, I believe a colony for American Negroes should be established on the west coast of Africa, bordering the state of Monrovia. Because of the exigencies of the times, any Negro who is race conscious and smart should be ready and more than willing to settle down in such a colony in West Africa. very same day in the halls of the Senate, hallowed by the figures of men the likes of Lincoln and Jefferson, Theodore Bilbo, as a representative of the American people, had this to say. I cannot vote for the appointment of Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt as delegate to the United Nations Organization for the United States. No. She is a woman who has professed friendship for the Negro elements in America. She has no place representing us abroad. Mr. President! Mr. President! The chair recognizes the senator from Idaho. 
Mr. President, I should like to congratulate the senator from Mississippi. He doesn't know it, but he just paid a splendid compliment to Mrs. Roosevelt by voting against her. Mr. President, gentlemen, please, please, I'd like to add one more note. A word of warning to our senator from the South. It isn't going to be long now, Senator, before the people of Mississippi see the light and knock you out of office on that part of your anatomy where your few brains are undoubtedly located. You must understand, please, this was merely a portrait, an interesting portrait of a representative of the American people, for, after all, Senator Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. He is looked upon as such by the eyes of the law. He is an honorable man. We did not intend to prove otherwise. The script for One Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gil Dowd is the producer and music by Otto Clare at the Hammond Organ. The material used in tonight's program was taken from authoritative files and from dispatches by Associated Press and International News Service. Listen next week, same time, same station, for one out of seven. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Ladies and gentlemen... The material and quotations used on the following program are taken from authentic news reports off the wires of Associated Press and International News Service. We present this material without editorial comment, since this station takes no official stand on any controversial question. We can, therefore, assume no responsibility for the attitude such statements reflect. From San Francisco, the American Broadcasting Company presents... One out of seven. Twenty-four hours make a day. Seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is one out of seven. We're not here to tell you what is good or what is evil or to tell you what is right and what is not right. Being only men as you are and thus being as moral or as immoral as you are, we refuse to mount the seat of judgment to pass sentence on those as guilty or as innocent as we claim ourselves to be. Now, we ask only that you pause, observe, and reflect. You have an intelligence of your own. Judge these actions for yourself. Last week, beneath the spacious skies of America the Beautiful, in the valleys of the amber grain and the fruited plain, and in the city towers looming high with the majesty of purple mountains, the people rejoiced and rededicated themselves in a nationwide Brotherhood Week. Lofty and ideal were the speeches of Brotherhood Week, 
stirring and altruistic were the pledges and promises of Brotherhood Week. Godly and charitable were the aims of Brotherhood Week. But there are two families in San Francisco who are asking questions. Two families. City desk, Martin. Uh, say, boss, here's a pretty fair yarn on an eviction case. You want it? Yeah, sure. What's it all about? Well, it seems there's a gentleman out in one of the residential districts who objects to the presence of a Filipino family in the neighborhood. There's also a Chinese family living nearby that, uh, well, it doesn't appeal to him either. Yeah, go on. Well, this gentleman says that the fact that these two families are living near him detracts from the value of his property. Well, what's the matter? Does he have something against them? Oh, no. Nothing like that, boss. Uh, he just says that when he moved there, he was told that it was a neighborhood for white people. White people only. Uh, one of those restricted deals, you know? Well, now he's filing suit to have him evicted. Says he's losing money if they stay. What about the two families? What have they got to say? Well, they're plenty burned up about it. They're organizing, yeah, to fight the neighbor boosters club who's behind this gentleman. One of the members of the Filipino family is a, well, he's a Navy veteran, and he gave me a pretty good quote. Well, go ahead. Let's have it. Okay, boss. Uh, he says, is this what we've been fighting for, to have a bunch of stay-at-homes throw us out of our house? No, we're not here to tell you what is right and what is wrong. We wish merely to report that last week, the nation observed Brotherhood Week. In the churches and town halls throughout the country, the people rededicated themselves to the principles of tolerance and charity of the Founding Fathers. Columbia, Tennessee. A little more than 24 hours ago, the worst racial disorder in years brought about by rumors of threatened lynching of Negroes sweeps the city. 500 highway patrolmen raid a two-block area in the Negro section of the town where the non-white are carefully segregated. Armed with pistols and machine guns, the huge force of police search every Negro building in the area. Under the command of the State Director of Public Safety, the patrolmen fire withering blasts through the windows of the homes of the buildings. Groups of the Negroes huddle behind barricaded doors, answer the machine gun fire with two or three scattered shots. More than 40 Negroes are arrested during the raid. The State Director of Public Safety describes the police exploit as a success. The origin of the bloody race riot is not clear, but it is reported that it started when a Negro woman and her son had a fight with a Navy veteran. The Negro couple were arrested, and it was then, according to one Negro, that the lynching rumor fired the town. Uh, isn't that right? Well, we heard that the white men were going to have a lynching party tonight, and, well, we didn't like that. We didn't want any killing to start again. in Christian charity, in the principles of brotherhood that Christ himself handed down to us, and let us again resolve to act and live by the precept that we are all brothers, regardless of the color of our skin or the creed we profess, that we are all brothers in the house of the Lord.
judgment on what is good and what is evil, we wish merely to report that last week in a nationwide celebration marked by pledge and promise, the people observed the annual custom of Brotherhood Week. In a large eastern city, time, Thursday of last week, a Jewish newspaper editor and his family stand outside their burning home, huddled in firemen's capes against the cold of the early winter morning. I'm from headquarters, Mr. Byrne. I heard about how the fire started in your house. Do you expect anybody or suspect anybody in particular? Well, no. I could not tell you the name of the man. I, I don't think I know him. But lately I've been receiving phone calls and... A few letters, too, warning me about the editorials I've been writing in my district newspaper. Well, what were those phone calls and letters all about, Mr. Burnt? Well, they, they said I was trying to make our district into a ghetto and a Negro colony because I've been opposing a drive by the neighborhood club to keep out all the Jews, Negroes, Italians, Chinese. I think, you know, officer, you must have heard. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, Mr. Burnt. I guess this is their answer, huh? Yeah, yeah. Tonight, there was another telephone call, and then about one o'clock, my, my wife and I were... All right, George, light the torches and let them fly. We'll teach that jewel after they won't forget. Come on, let's get out of here. You see, it is not our place to pass sentence on the incident. For we're only men as moral or as immoral as you are, or as they are. We wish only to point out that last week was Brotherhood Week. Several appropriate speeches were made, and the people as a whole pledged themselves to tolerance and charity. The annual observance was acclaimed a success throughout the nation. Priests and This is a story which probably will not receive... The circulation, it deserves. It concerns an incident which occurred last week at a southeastern Navy station here in the United States. And if my guess is right, it should give many a citizen cause to stop and ponder the worth and aims of our lately won victory. It all happened in one of the mess rooms at this particular Navy base where a group of officers... Now, look, I don't care what anybody says. It's all the fault of the Jews. Now, look, I was in the Pacific, yeah. And all the time we're sweating it out over there, the big Jews back in the States are demanding that we defeat Germany first while the men in the Pacific starve and sweat it out. Now, oh, no, no, you can't tell me a thing about those Jews, brother. I know exactly what they're like. You can have them. I, uh, I beg your pardon, Commander. I'm a Jew, and I think you're very mistaken in what you say. Well, I'll... Now, listen here, Mr. Goldstein. You're a lieutenant. The Constitution may say that I have to serve in the same Navy with Jews, but there are no Navy regulations that say I have to eat at the same table with them. Now, you other gentlemen will excuse me. Last week was Brotherhood Week. Last week was Brotherhood Week. Down through the rain, down through the wet 
glistening street he came, his head bared, his frayed coat collar pulled tightly around his neck, a wide, ugly cut on his forehead, still bleeding, a monstrous bruise covering the side of his face. But strangely, I noticed he walked straight up, his head high. He came up and he stood beside me at the bus stop. And after a while, he said, You, uh, you are wondering about me. Is that not so? This, uh, cut on my head and this bruise on my face? Why, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I, I was wondering about... Yeah, well... Well, it looks like a pretty nasty cut, mister. Tell me, how'd you get it? Well, it all happened so suddenly, I... I still cannot remember everything. I try. Tonight, like every Wednesday night, we have our meeting down in the hall on the west side of the city, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know where that hall is. Well, on Wednesdays, the people who are of my race, well, we all meet together to learn about our new country, to study the language, and to try to be better Americans. Uh-huh. But tonight, we have some visitors. They are a group of men, and they say, we cannot stay here because this town is for people of their race only. We say we will not go. And then there is a big fight. The men wreck our club room. They smash our furniture and they fight with us. They tell us in loud voices, get out, stay out. But we fight back because we know the laws. The laws say these men are wrong. Oh, but the laws, they are not everything, are they? Well, uh, no. No, they're not, mister. You'll find that out. Yes, yes. We have found it out already. There are many things different about America than first, I thought. Ah, well, now, I must cross the street to the church. Would you like to come with me? I do not pray, you know. But I like to stand there in the church and say these things. It makes me feel better inside here after what has happened tonight. I crossed the street with him and I went into the church. We sat down in one of the pews far back in one of the dark corners of the church. A few candles flickered uncertainly up at the altar. And after a long moment, he turned to me and he said, I, I do not hate these men who do such things. I am not bitter against them. Only I have so much pity for them. For is it not true? They are like frightened little children. Afraid, running around, looking for an enemy to fight. Anybody. But they do not see. The real enemy, he is inside them. Oh, they hate us. Yes, they hate us. But really, they do not know why. They would kill us. And then they would look down at our bodies and they would feel like little children who had just broken their toys. They, they see only the difference of color or language. And they become angry because we are not as they. Oh, it is so sad. And that is why I have so much pity for them. So blind. They are so blind. The sun is there waiting for them. Shining warm and full over everybody. But their eyes are still closed. 
and all they can see is the darkness. The script for One Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gil Dowd is the producer, and music is by Otto Clare at the Hammond Organ. All characters in tonight's performance were portrayed by Jack Webb. Listen next week, same time, same station, for One Out of Seven. Mark Jordan speaking. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. From San Francisco, the American Broadcasting Company presents One Out of Seven. Twenty-four hours make a day, seven days make one week, and from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is One Out of Seven.
ensure the peace of the world so dearly bought, and that is by standing firm with other nations, by displaying our armed might at every turn, and if necessary, by getting tough. Getting tough. Let me tell you people of this great and glorious nation, the Third World War is already well on its way to fulfillment. Already the world is turning into an armed camp, seething mistrust, suspicion, fear, that we must prepare for its coming and take steps to defend ourselves? Is it not now evident that there is a nation to the westward with whom it is impossible to live in peace and security? The danger is there. It is threatening. And I say that if we must fight another war, then let's have it now and be done with it. If our freedom must be bought again with the sacrifice of more sons, then let us be brave enough and strong enough to buy that freedom. The danger is there and we must fight it. We must fight it. We must fight it. We must fight it. Fears, suspicions, mistrust, eating at their tiny brains, hating, not knowing why they hate, not understanding, not caring to understand, speaking of their doom as though it were another crusade, unmindful of the great cloak of darkness, pressing closer, reveal that a score of congressmen will soon submit a bill which provides that American military and naval bases throughout the world, together with our total arm might, be further strengthened to provide against attack by possible enemy nations in the West. The United Nations Organization, the supposed hope of the world, is reeling toward its grave already. Regrettable indeed, but that certainly appears to be the situation tonight after the serious cleavage between the big three powers on current issues of major importance. In fact, only this afternoon, a prominent military source in Washington told me that the Third World War is not only inevitable, but fast approaching. These past weeks, America, her people, and her neighbors 
reacted with dead pessimism to the ever-growing possibility of a third world war. In a recognized national poll of public opinion, a cross-section of the populace was asked, Do you think there will be another world war in the next 20 years? And the people, lately delivered from the death grip of a second world holocaust, answered in a majority of more than 65%? Yes, there will be another world war in the next 20 years. Contemplate the inevitable horror, and then act according to the dictates of your will. Stand high above the wind, and look down with pity in your heart, and listen to the angry mutterings of the childlike creatures as they quarrel over they know not what. columns are established and are now working in complete unity and absolute obedience to Moscow. Nobody knows what Soviet Russia intends to do in the immediate future. Oh, what are the limits, if any, to their expansive tendencies? Thus, neither the sure prevention of war nor the continuous rise of world organization will be gained without the fraternal association of the English-speaking people. This means that a special relationship should be established between the British Commonwealth and Empire and the United States. A few days later, after endless hysterical commentary and reaction, there comes the answer to these words. Soviet Union will follow its chosen path without deviation. Until now, those who tried to show strength to the Russian people, without exception, lost in the undertaking. Why then does Mr. Winston Churchill call the two great Anglo-Saxon nations to this fatal road? Russia is not seeking world supremacy, but our nation is determined to secure its own frontiers. 
to do this. We will not yield to any threats, to any subterfuges, nor to any art of the most modern, familiar, or unfamiliar weapons. And while the storm rages, and suspicions, mistrust, and misunderstandings grow, and accepted channels of information clog the nation's mind with frightened, uncertain reports, from a quiet house in the city of Washington, the quiet voice of aging statesman Cordell Hull is heard throughout the towns and cities of the nation. We, who are living now, must not allow the human race to commit suicide through the lack of vision or through selfishness, impatience, or provocation. I offer this five-point program to help us overcome the dark threat in the world. First, that we examine with sympathy and patience the views of others. Secondly, that we ascertain the true facts. Thirdly, that we avoid taking stubborn positions one way or the other. Fourthly, that we refrain from exaggerating and overemphasizing one's own claim. And lastly, that we refrain from making an appeal to prejudice. Stand high above the wind and look down on them. Pitiful creatures, so confused, so frightened by the gathering darkness, so sure that there will be a tomorrow. So sure. Even while their speck of earth totters at the edge of utter destruction. Look down on them and have pity. The script for One Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gild out as the producer and music is by Otto Clare at the Hammond Organ. Tonight's program was based on dispatches taken from the wires of Associated Press, United Press, and International News Service. All characters were portrayed by Jack Webb. Listen next week, same time, same station for... One out of seven. Mark Jordan speaking. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing is your store for quality, distinctive t-shirts. Established in Scottsdale, Arizona, Panoramic is streetwear that reflects the lifestyle of a modern West. Apparel inspired by vision that moves in all directions. These are eye-pleasing, pre-shrunk cotton tees for men, women, and children in all sizes with wide-ranging designs. All shirts are double-stitched at the seams, shoulder, sleeve, collar, and waist for durability, and the perfect fit. 
Go to plclothing.store to view our vast selection. While there, check out our Instagram and YouTube photo shoots. Click the link to register to vote in the upcoming election so your voice will be heard. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing, premium t-shirts at popular prices. Get quality for less at plclothing.store. The world is embracing cryptocurrency. Don't get left out. Make Coinbase your home base for the new digital economy. Millions of people and businesses trust Coinbase to buy, sell, and manage crypto. You can even earn free crypto by watching their instructional videos, which make trading and investing so easy. Coinbase is committed to creating more economic freedom through accessible, safe, and secure financial tools for everyone. To sign up, go to krobcollection.com. From the K-Rob Collection, this has been Audio Antiques, a program featuring shows from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson, and our email address is audioantiques at hkrmail.com. Our music is by hbeats at hbeats330 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and feel free to subscribe to Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection. 